Colossians chapter 2. While you're turning there, think about this with me. What is your greatest interest? What is your greatest interest? Okay, it's a very simple question. What interests you the most? Um, For some of you, that changes with the seasons. Others of you, that is uh, always constant. Let me ask it this way. What do you spend the majority of your time on? What are you looking up? What are you studying? What are you doing? What are you spending the majority of your time on? When you have nothing else to do, you're sitting on the couch, you're like, ugh, I just need to do something. What pops in your mind to go and do? What is that? What is that thing? Okay? Maybe even a better question is this. What distracts you? You're working hard on something, you're, you're trying to be, stay focused, and you're really trying to get this job done, but this one thing just keeps popping into your mind, and you just want to go do it. You just, you just want to do it. It keeps distracting you. For me, this is the outdoors, okay? All of these things. I focus my time, my energy. Um, it distracts me. In fact, I have the worst office in the world for this, because I have two really big windows that look out into the bush, And there's often sometimes deer that walk through, and it's very hard for me to not look outside. In fact, I put my desk up against the wall, looking at the wall for that particular reason. I did it on purpose. Because if my my desk was facing outside, I would get no work done at all. I would not get anything done because I just love looking outside, especially the nice days that we've had. And um, really, to be honest with you, I'm just really weird like this. Nice sunny day after a fresh blanket of snow has fallen, I just, just makes me want to be outside. Just so badly want to get outside and enjoy the weather and just enjoy the, the creation that God has allowed us to have. And so it's super exciting to me. That's what I get. Um, I, I remember working outside on the farm. And I mean, it would be 30 plus degrees and working outside and putting fence up. And I remember one time just like completely and utterly being able to wring my shirt out because of sweat. It was terrible. I remember thinking, man, I cannot wait until I have an office job that has air conditioning. I can't wait for that day. Now I have that job. I sit in the office and I have air conditioning and guess what I want to do? I want to be outside sweating to death. I just really do. I genuinely love being outside. And so I know I'm weird, but these are the things that distract me. All right? The question is, what about you? What distracts you? What excites you? What is the greatest of your interests? The reality is all of us has something that excites us. Something. I don't know what it is. I may not have mentioned it, but it excites you. It's something that you cling to. It's something that is, you are drawn to, something that we spend a great deal of time doing. In fact, we study it. We try to understand it better. But let me ask you this question, and let me be a little bit pointed with you. As I began describing that, and as I uh, asked that question, don't raise your hand, but how many of you, the first thought was Jesus? Jesus is my greatest interest, Okay? Not a whole lot of people getting excited right now, right? The reality is that that was not my first thought. My first thought was what I told you, outside. The reality is most of us didn't think about Jesus as our greatest interest. Not something that we get excited about very much anymore. I mean, the reality is this. We perhaps used to get excited about Jesus. I mean, he used to be our greatest interest. He used to distract us from our work, trying to get something done, and all we could think about was Jesus. Perhaps there was a time when just out of nowhere, you would begin crying, not because you're an emotional woman and nobody knows why you're crying, but because you just were thinking about Jesus Christ. You were just so thankful for what he had done in your life, and you were so just just moved with that passion that you just began to weep. Maybe there was a time you did that. Maybe he used to excite you. Maybe he used to, uh, maybe you used to cling to him. Something has changed. It will be my intention this morning to challenge us all to get back to a place where our passion for Jesus Christ is the utmost importance. Where Jesus Christ is our greatest interest. 
So I want to preach to you a message this morning that I've entitled The Distracted Investor. The Distracted Investor. If you're thinking about investing money, if you are the type of person that is distracted, uh, every time you hear the word squirrel, you're looking somewhere else. Okay, you're constantly looking for something new and better and you're just distracted with the next best thing. You will not be a good investor. A good investor is focused. A good investor is patient. A good investor takes time. And so I want to explore that with you this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll dive into Colossians chapter 2. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to be here this morning. I pray that as we look into this message, Father, that we would all return to a passionate, a passionate relationship with you, one that we have had or maybe haven't experienced at all whatsoever. Father, I pray that all of us would come to that conclusion this morning. And Father, we pray that you would help us, give us the strength to do so. Thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins that we might even be talking about having this relationship with you. And Father, we thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says this, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the, uh, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Look at verse 3. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I, am I with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Twice in this passage, I don't know if you caught it, but twice in this passage, Paul gives a very stark warning to the Christians at Colossae. Two times Paul gives a warning. He says, listen, don't let someone beguile you, found in verse 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. I'm saying these things so that someone doesn't beguile you. And then in verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Don't let someone beguile you. And number two, don't let someone spoil you. Don't let someone beguile you and don't let someone spoil you. Now beguiling means deceiving. Dis, di, taking your, your thought process and distracting that and subverting it onto something else and deceiving you, making you think that it's something more special than it is. Satan does this all the time. Now, I think most of us understand what spoiled is. You have an apple that's been in your fruit bowl for a long time and it starts to shrivel up and get really soft. Don't eat that apple. Don't do it. Take my advice, just don't do it, all right? That's a spoiled apple, and we know that one apple spoils the entire bunch, right? We all know these things, and something that's spoiled is not wonderful. You ever had milk that spoils? Mmm, such a wonderful smell, isn't it? And we eat that stuff. It's called cottage cheese. That's literally what it is, okay? Spoiled, rotten milk. So we know what these things are, we understand them beguiling, and, and Paul is saying, listen, please, please beware, don't let someone spoil you, don't let someone beguile you. But in between these two warnings, Paul gives us a remedy, which I love. I love when Paul says, listen, here's a problem, but I also have a solution for you. And so here, nestled in between these two things, is verse 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. As ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. If you do not want to be beguiled, if you do not want to be spoiled, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So hopefully this begs the question, how did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, the Bible says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. 
It is only because of the wonderful grace of God that we have the opportunity through faith to have experienced salvation through Jesus Christ. Our sin condemns us to hell. That is the place that we will go, that we will burn forever. But the good news is that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace brought us Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to this earth and is nailed on a cross, taking our sin and being placed upon him. God turning his back on his own son. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then he says, it is finished. The work that was needed to be done, the death that we were to pay was now been paid by Jesus Christ. And we, just simply by putting our faith and trust in him, his death on the cross, through his shed blood, we can know eternal life. Wow, what a wonderful, powerful thing that that is. And so how should we live our lives? We ought to live our lives by the grace of God. Many of you this morning could raise your hands and just give testimony of the grace of God in your life. Even after you were saved, just God working in your life. Things that you did not deserve, God placed upon you as unmerited favor. Wow, what a wonderful picture. And in return, we through faith live our lives according to the will of God. That's how we received Christ and that's how we ought to live. And that's surface level, understand, that's very top level and that's okay, but there's some things underneath that I think when we were first saved, when we first knew Jesus Christ, that we're just a little bit different than maybe they are today. And so this morning I very simply want to walk through three things that we realize at the moment of salvation that we must remember throughout our entire lives. Three things we realize at the moment of salvation That we must remember throughout our lives, number one, unimaginable treasures. Excuse me, unspeakable treasures. Unspeakable treasures. Look at verse 3. The Bible says this. In whom, talking about Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hid all treasures. Now I want you to think about that again. We've talked about the treasure. We've talked about finding buried treasure and how wonderful it is. And remember when you first got saved, and by the way, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, still listen in. Because there's some wonderful things that you find out about Christ in this message. I hope that you'll understand the unspeakable treasure that he has for you. When you got saved, you realize the incredible riches that God has. The Bible tells us that when we got saved, he, he made us sit in heavenly places. Think about it. He translated us from one down in the dumps, this earth, and he translated us to sit with him on high in heavenly places, in the palace, if you will. Man, now we have access to God. In this heavenly place, the streets aren't made of asphalt. They're not even dirt roads. They're made of gold. Pure gold. The Bible talks about them being so pure that you can see through them. Beautiful. Can you imagine thinking about pure gold streets? And not only that, there are mansions being built. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm building a mansion for you. And all of, so there's going to be mansions all over the place. There is no night in heaven because Jesus is the light. Wow, what a wonderful place, the beautiful light. And I could just picture the light of Jesus Christ shining through the streets of gold, shining through the crystal river and everything just sparkling. Not only that, the Bible talks about gates made of pearl. Wow, what a wonderful picture that is. I don't know, I want to see the oyster that makes pearls that big. That would be spectacular, wouldn't it? That would be like giant oyster. So there's gates of pearl. The Bible says that the city of God, the foundation is all gemstones. I mean, seriously, think about it. The treasure that God has is far beyond really anything that we could really ever comprehend. We've never seen anything like it. We've seen some incredible places. We've seen some incredible things, but I want you to understand what God has is far above anything that we could ask or think. But even far beyond that, we realize that the greatest treasure comes from God, and that greatest treasure is very simply truth. 
I want you to think about truth and what a great treasure that is. You could have all the riches in the entire world. You could have everything you ever wanted, but not have truth. You would feel in bondage. In fact, the Bible very clearly states, if you believe the truth, the truth will make you free. There's freedom in truth. There's a foundation, a solid foundation of truth. And here again, in, the, in verse 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. I, and, and I just would like you to think about something. If you have truth, if you have wisdom and you have knowledge, you take those things, you take wisdom and you take knowledge, and what can you do with those? You can have the greatest treasures in all the world, financially. Think about men who have done well financially. Have they done it by happenstance? Not really. They're extremely wise. They're extremely knowledgeable. But here's what we're talking about in this particular passage. We're knowing Jesus Christ and understanding who he is. In him are the greatest treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have a new foundation of truth, as I said before. In fact, we will often go to him for wisdom. Remember when you first entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember how wonderful things were and how excited you were. And remember when you were going to work and didn't really know how to act with Jesus Christ, you would often pray. Say, God, I need wisdom. Help me to understand. Help me to know how to act, how to say, how to talk. He asked him for wisdom. We knew that there was so much more to know about him. We knew that there was more to know about God. It wasn't just his salvation that he had for us. There was so much more, and we were constantly going to him to know more. Very simply, this morning, he is full of unspeakable riches. But number two, he gave us unattainable completion. Unattainable completion. Jump down to verse 10 with me. Just read the first part of the verse. The Bible says this, and ye are complete in him. And ye are complete in him. Most of us at some point in our lives have tried to complete ourselves on our own. We've tried to fill the void on our own. We've we've done things like uh, try to make more money. We've done things like try to buy a new boat or a new jet ski or a new uh, motorcycle or new golf clubs. or I mean, you fill in the blank of different things that you've tried to fill the void in. Hey, maybe if I get a bigger house, a newer house, I will feel settled. Maybe if I got a better car, then I would not have to worry so much. Maybe if I did this or did that, you fill in the blank as to the things that, that we put our, our preferences into and our, our, our soul interest into, and we think those are going to fill the void. The reality is everybody who's tried those things still feels empty. Still feels like, as Pastor Stone used to say, something missing. It's just not there. It's just not filling that void And I still feel empty. We're trying to complete ourselves with everything in the world, but the reality is there's only one thing that can complete us. There's only one thing that can fill the void. There's only one thing that will make us feel full, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. That is the person of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19, the Bible says this, And to know the love of God, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. I want you to think about that. Being filled with all the fullness of God. God is our everything. He completes us. He fills us with all the fullness. That sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? How can you be filled with fullness? Because of God. God is everything. By him, all things are made by him and for him. He fills us. He completes us. You can try it all you want on your own. You can work hard. You can try to fill that void on your own, but nothing will fill that void except for Jesus Christ. Let's go to Philippians 4.19. The Bible says this, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He will fulfill all your need. The only way you can be fulfilled and have your needs met is only through the person of Jesus Christ. And he has great riches. He has 
incredible riches. So when we get saved, when we know Jesus Christ is our personal Savior, we feel full for the first time. We feel complete for the first time. Now, I was four years old when I got saved. I don't really remember feeling empty. I don't really remember feeling like I was missing something in my life, but when presented with the gospel and receiving Christ as my Savior, I remember being so excited, so full, so, so passionate about God, and I wanted to tell everybody. At four, I remember that. I remember that exciting time. I felt as if I could never need anything again. Maybe you remember that. Maybe you think about that. Number three, I want you to see this unrivaled power. Unrivaled power. Jump down to verse 10 again. And ye are complete in him. Watch this. Which is the head of all principality and power. You see, God is the head of all principalities and all power. When we get saved, we often realize the absolute unrivaled power of God. We have experienced his powerful love in our lives. The love of Jesus Christ. The love of God that he would send his only begotten son to this world. We think about the cross and the power that it took for the sin of the entire world to be placed upon him. And three days later to rise from the dead. Wow, God has some amazing power. Jesus could have at any time called 10,000 angels to come to his side and relieve him. The power of God. If you know anything about the life of Jesus Christ, you saw the miracles that he did. You see the power in healing the, the blind. You saw the power in the miracles that he did. And it makes you, if, if you're anything like me, it makes you want to find out if there's more. I remember reading some stories in the Bible or being taught them in Sunday school about the power of God. And I'm like, man, are there any more of those stories in here? And sure enough, you begin to find out that God parts a Red Sea. God makes the sun and the moon stand still. God does some awesome, wonderful, powerful thing. He's raising people from the dead. God is all powerful. There is nothing more powerful than him. We stand in awe of God's omnipotence, meaning all-powerful. We stand in awe of it. And we begin to learn of this. We think about him speaking the world into existence. That's power. We see his power in all kinds of different things and it excites us. It amazes us. It, it makes us want to know more. I don't know if you can attest to this or maybe I'm just the only one up here just spouting off. But if you can attest to those feelings of, man, I've got the greatest treasure in all the world. I, have, I feel complete for the first time in my life and I found out that God has unrivaled power. He can help me through anything in my life. And you were excited by that. And you might say, well, if I'm very honest with you this morning, I just don't have that same passion. Let me ask this question, what changed? Did God change? Is God still the same God? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is. He, he has not changed. I am the Lord. I change not. So what changed? The reality is we have. We've changed. But how? How have I changed? What happened? Well, let's go ahead and take a look. I want to show you simply two things that spoil our view of the Savior. Two things that spoil our view of the Savior. Look at verse 8 with me. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain to see. Here it is. After, number one, the tradition of men. So just for sake of it, I called it this. The rituals of men. The rituals of men. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but very simply, rituals of men are things that everyone else is doing. Just things that everybody else is doing. Rituals. Listen, these rituals change all the time, don't they? Fashions change. Trends change. People change. They're just constantly changing. Technology changes. 
I remember thinking, man, I want that new and improved, I don't even remember what it was, but I just remember thinking it. And I remember telling my mom, everyone has one. And she would say something like this. So if everybody has one and everybody's doing something, if everybody were to jump off of a bridge, would you jump off that bridge? Well, no. And so this would go on and there would be more things. And I'd say, everybody has one. Finally, one day I got so sick of her asking me, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you be the one to jump off a bridge? I said, yes. So sick of you asking me, I'm just going to go jump off a bridge. And she says, see you later. My mom is so compassionate, such a mercy shower. The reality is all of us have a passionate desire to follow, subconsciously most of the time. We want to fit in. We do have what, what we call a herd mentality in which all of us want to do the same thing that everybody else is doing. It's normal. It's natural. It, it, it happens. But the reality is what often happens is we focus so much on the rituals of men that we forget about Christ. And it slowly wears us down. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not just the rituals of men outside of the church. This is rituals of men inside of the church. Inside the four walls. Listen, we do things a certain way here. That's just because we do things a certain way here. There are, there are some things that we do that are based upon the Bible. But nowhere in the Bible does it say to sing three hymns. Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to open with a special. Nowhere in the Bible does it say how long I'm supposed to preach. In fact, if anything, it says that Paul preached until midnight. Hello. So we do certain things. I mean, yes, the Bible says that we should sing praises. Yes, the Bible does say that we ought to preach. Yes, the Bible does say that we ought to be attentive in church and all those different things. But the reality is that we do some things that just are tradition. And those are okay. They're not wrong. But here's the problem. Just like the Pharisees, when we hold to tradition, we make the commandments of God of none effect. This is the way we've always done it. This is the color our pews have been for 40 years. And the style's coming back, so we might as well just keep them, right? See, we, we, we talk like this, and we, we, we make these traditions like there's something special. And what happens is we are so focused on those traditions that we forget about Christ, and slowly we erode away trying to keep up with the world or keep up with our traditions. We've, we've forgotten. Look, look at verse 8 again. At the end of the verse it says, and not after Christ. And not after Christ. And so there used to be a time when we were so focused on Jesus Christ. We were so distracted by him. We'd be working and we'd just be distracted by who Jesus Christ was. We'd begin to weep at the thankfulness of him. Not anymore. Because we're too concerned. We're too concerned with what's going on in our world. We're too concerned with keeping up with the trends. We're too concerned with holding on to our, our traditions that we hold so dearly, our, if you will, sacred cows that are good for nothing but a good steak. They're good for nothing. We think about these things, the traditions of men, number two, the rituals of men, number two, the rudiments of the world. The rudiments of the world. Again, very simply, it is this. Anything that is against Christ. The elements, the principles of the world, the, the way the world functions is against Christ. It is anti-Christ. It has been that way since the beginning of Adam and Eve. When the first sin entered in the world. You think about sin. What is sin? Good or bad? Bad. Sin is bad, and so sin goes against God. Sin is against God. Listen, every part of our world, from the beginning, from Adam, all the way till now, the world's whole center has been anti-Christ. 
You might think, well, 20 years, 30 years ago it wasn't. Then you've been misled. You've been changed because the reality is though many other people in our area may have followed Christ, the world has been constantly and consistently anti-Christ. The rudiments of the world. Very simply, just sinful. Sinful against Christ. Now the question is this. The question is this. How did we get to this point? How did we get to the point where we're just eroding away what Christ has given us? Where we're just, now it's almost becoming sinful. How do we get to that point? Look with me again in verse 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you. Here it is. With. With what? Enticing words. Enticing words. Doesn't stop there. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through what? Philosophy. And vain deceit. Have you ever had somebody come up to you with disagreeing positions and and say something to this effect? Doesn't it just make sense in our society? And they begin throwing in these enticing words and this philosophy. Right? All of us have had these things. Or, you know what? I am not going to do that. I will never do that in my life. And the more that somebody talks to you, and the more that you listen, and the more that they continue and continue, we would almost call it nagging. Finally, you just say, okay, you make, that makes sense. I should do that. The reality is there are people in our world that are constantly anti-Christ, and they are constantly holding on to tradition that are through enticing words and philosophy, they are distracting us from the call that God has placed on our lives. They're distracting us from Jesus Christ. Say, Pastor Holmes, I still don't really understand. Let me give you the best illustration that I believe I could come up with. And it's found in the Bible. Most of you would know what today is called. Today is called Sunday, but yes, there's a holiday on this particular Sunday before Easter. It's called Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a wonderful day. Palm Sunday is famous for the palm trees that were laid on the road. But really, I want you to understand this, Palm Sunday was a time of celebration, excitement, passion. Let's go to John chapter 12, and we'll look at this. John chapter 12 and verse 12. John chapter 12 and verse 12. John chapter 12 and verse 12. The Bible says here in verse 12, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, here it is, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Did you catch that? Did you see what they called him? The king of Israel. And he comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 14, and Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. Verse 17, the people therefore that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record for this cause... The people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. Listen, the people absolutely adored Jesus Christ. In fact, they so adored him that they were willing to take time out of their day. They were in Jerusalem for a reason. They maybe had to work that day. I don't know all the circumstances, but they took time out of their day and went and saw Jesus. They were so enthralled with him that even they began cutting down palm branches and laying them on the streets so that Jesus would not have to ride his donkey on dirty streets. In another passage in the New Testament, we see people taking off their cloaks and throwing them down again for the same reason. Listen, they were so in love with Jesus that they were willing to cast these things down. Why would they be so enthralled? Well, 
They saw his power. He had healed so many of their sick. He had healed the deaf. He had healed the blind. He had made, uh, he had raised here in this particular passage that he had raised Lazarus to life. And people are like, whoa, this guy is pretty awesome. Here they come. Hosanna, king of, the, king of Israel. They were rejoicing. What a, what a wonderful picture this is of the first day of salvation. Man, just absolutely pumped that Jesus Christ is here. That Jesus Christ is now a part of your life. You're just so excited and you really could cry, Hosanna, king of my life. And you would, at that time, throw your life down at his feet and say, do whatever you want with me. I'm so thankful for what you've done. Oh, what a powerful picture. So we celebrate him. That was Palm Sunday. Three to four days later, three to four days later, there is a multitude in Jerusalem that has gathered again. And this time it's to see Jesus, but the results are much, much different. Much, much different. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 20, the Bible says this. Watch now. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. Verse 23, And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, Let him be crucified. Then Pilate saw and he could prevail nothing, but re- that rather a tumult was made. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. And the most contrasting picture then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Wow. What a difference. What an absolute difference from three to four days. At one point they're crying, Hosanna, King of Israel. Come here from God. What a powerful, amazing person. And now they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. You know what? Forget it. We don't care if his blood is on us. Let it be on our children as well. What change? Well, the reality of the situation is this, and we all need to understand this. We have no idea if these are the same multitudes, the same people. We have no idea. There's no way to prove that. It has been said that they are the same, but we don't know. What changed was the elders of Israel and the chief priests had enticed the people with the traditions of men. With the traditions of men. It was a tradition. It was a law that a man was not to blaspheme. And blaspheming means virtually saying, I am God. That is a blasphemous statement. And here, in the trial of Jesus, they bring him before a judge, and they're trying to find false witnesses against him. And this whole time, they bring false witness after false witness after false witness. And the Bible says that really, vaguely, none of them stuck. None of them would stick. Those false witnesses uh, were, were to bear record. Before long, two people come forward and say, I remember him saying that he was God. There we go. We got him on blasphemy. So that's brought before the judge. And the judge says, hey, Jesus, are you, the, are you God? Are you the son of God? And he says, ye say that I am. And the place goes wild. He blasphemed. He blasphemed. He blasphemed. Let me ask you a question. Did he blaspheme? It's not blasphemy if you're God. 
And so he is God in the flesh. So he's not blaspheming. But because of the tradition that had been held for so long, they are looking at the Christ and saying, the tradition of men holds up. And these men, these elders and priests saying, going around telling everybody, he's blaspheming. He's blaspheming. You need to turn against him. Let Barabbas go. Let the murderer, let the robber go because this blasphemer is far more deadly, far more guilty. The reality is Jesus was God. The reality is three to four days earlier, they were celebrating him. They were excited about him. They were passionate about him. But now they're yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. All because of the traditions of men and sin. You realize why Jesus was here in the first place? Because of sin. Because he came to die and pay the penalty for your sin. Sin was placed upon him. So for the traditions of men, the rituals of men, and the rudiments of the world, Jesus was put on the cross that day. And listen, if this is no story of our lives, there are many of us that are paying more attention to the rituals of men and what's going on in this world than we are in keeping ourselves close to God. So let me ask you this morning, what traditions or rituals are keeping you from God? Listen, don't miss this. This is the end right here. What traditions, what rituals of men, what sin is keeping you from pursuing God just like you used to know him? What is it? What is everyone else doing that is distracting you from God? What is everyone else doing that is distracting you? Let, let me get a little bit more pointed with you. There have been many of us, myself included, that have been distracted by the tiniest of microscopic things in the world, a virus. Listen, I'm, I'm not saying it's not real, understand. But we've been distracted by that. We've been so concerned with what everybody else is doing on both sides of the coin, pandemic and plandemic. We're so concerned with what everyone else is doing. And the reality is we have lost Christ in all of this. We are, we, I mean, listen, people are upset with other people for wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. People are upset now, vaccine or no vaccine. Listen, I don't care where you stand. Let me ask you, are you with Christ? Are you walking with him? Are you talking with him? Do you read more about what somebody else believes about this virus? Or are you studying what God believes about it? God, what do you have planned for my life? Listen, I'm talking to myself here. There have been so many times I get caught up in one thing or another and I have to come back and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? You say, Pastor Owens, it's not the virus for me. I could care less. Or I have God's mind. Listen, that's wonderful. Then what else is it? What else is it? Maybe, maybe it's just you spending all your time on your phone. It's that simple. Listen, iPhones, I'm not sure about Androids, but iPhones have a wonderful feature called screen time. You can tell exactly how much time you've spent on your phone. I will not show you mine because it's appalling. I spent a great deal of time on my phone. Not just using it for talking and texting. Maybe you, maybe you spend all night watching YouTube or scrolling through Facebook or you fill in the blank of what you're doing. But listen, what is your greatest interest? Maybe, maybe for you it's something sinful, according to the rudiments of the world. Maybe for you it's pornography. Maybe for you it's lust. Maybe for you it's impure thoughts, or maybe you're just a liar. Maybe you cheat. Maybe you still listen, the list could go on and on and on and on and on, but only you know the Holy Spirit of God can tell you what you are doing that keeps you away from him. The reality is this, there are many 
of us that are distracted. There are many of us that are distracted. And whatever your distraction is, whatever it is, we have lost our Palm Sunday. We have lost our excitement. We have lost our passion. We have lost our celebration of who Jesus Christ is. And you may not even care. You see, the reality is, and I mentioned this before, we don't know if this was the same crowd or not. If it was, they starkly changed. If it wasn't, I want you to notice that nobody was standing up and saying, don't crucify him. So they were just sitting back lethargic, not caring. Just absolutely without a care in the world. Where are you? Where are you today? Where, where are you sitting? See, Pastor Yomas, I'm in church today. That's, that's not the question I asked. The question I asked is, what is your greatest interest? There's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to come back. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth once. and He died. And I have no doubt in my mind that those people that cried crucify him, when he died, they were like, Pilate, wash my hands of that, good, he's done, he's out of here, we can go on with our lives. Three days later, uh uh-oh, he rose from the dead. We'll talk about that this Easter, this next coming Sunday. Listen, there's a day that I think looking across the room, majority of us, No, Jesus Christ is our personal Savior. There's a day, a Palm Sunday, where we were excited. But somehow we've been beguiled. Somehow we've been spoiled. Somehow we've just kind of pushed Jesus aside and we think, that's all right, I'm saved. There's going to come a day when Jesus comes back. And there are going to be a lot of Christians that go, "Uh uh-oh. Oops. Should have, should have invested a little more. When Jesus comes back, let me ask you this question. Is he going to find you steadfast? Unmovable. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. The Bible says this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because Jesus Christ is coming back, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Listen. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Can I, can I put it to you in Johnny terms? Invest in the kingdom of God and you will always have a return. Invest in the kingdom of God constantly consistently invest in the kingdom of God and you will always have a return. When Jesus appears, when the trumpet sounds, are you going to be looking, faithful, constantly moving forward? Are you going to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Are you going to be beguiled? Are you going to be enticed? Are you going to be spoiled? See, the reality is, I want to get to heaven, and I want to lay at Jesus' feet pure gold, silver, and precious stones. Pure, unadulterated. Can you imagine getting to heaven, taking a bunch of spoiled, dirty, rotten fruit, and laying it at his feet. Imagine saying, this is what I did for you my whole life. And it's all just spoiled. See, Palm Sunday was a celebration where they laid the best things that they had on them at the time at Jesus' feet. Three days later, they were putting a spear in his side, 
Instead of laying things at his feet, they were playing games at his feet, putting nails in his feet. Don't be beguiled by enticing words of man's tradition and the rudiments of the world. I encourage you, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. David said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Don't get distracted. Continue to keep Christ as a center, as a focus. And if you do, you will have the joy of your salvation of joy unspeakable and full of glory. You won't, be able to, you won't be able to explain it, but for the sake of Jesus Christ. So the question is simple. What's distracting you this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all you've done for us. Father, I pray that there's one here today that does not know you as personal savior that they would know that today they would experience everything that you have to offer not only in this life but the life to come father eternal life father for the rest that if we're honest there'd be very few of us that could say I still have the same passion and the same fervor for Jesus Christ that I once had. I pray that you would give us the strength, the ability to see you as we once did. Help us to put aside those traditions of men, put aside the rituals and the rudiments of this world. Look unto Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to see you in a new light this morning. Help us to re 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 Enter through the door of passion and excitement in you. Father, we ask that you would continue to help us. We pray all these things in your name. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed.